Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, it's Glenn James. This message is being played at the start of all podcasts that Simo Interactive produces. It has come to my attention that there was a licensing issue with the music that we were using for our shows. And until that issue is resolved, and it might take a couple of weeks because I'm overseas at the moment, I've just decided out of an abundance of caution, I would stop using any music until we've resolved the issue. So if you are new to the podcast, you probably won't notice anything different. If it's not your first time, this is why there is no music in the episodes at this time. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon. I had a quick look on LinkedIn today and it's four years since we've been operating our My Millennial Property. So time flies when you are having fun. Speaking of fun, I'm extremely excited today to interview one of the key people in Australian real estate over the last 40, 45 years. He has a great history of um, starting up businesses, working for He was a CEO of the Mervac Group. He is uh, chair of Backtrack, which is an organisation assisting uh, vulnerable young people. He's with Charter Hall Group. He's been around the traps for longer than you and I included. And that is none other than Greg Paramore, who um, joins us today. So can't wait to have a chat to Greg. Uh, So sit down, grab a cup of tea and let's go for it. Greg, thanks for coming in. John, it's a pleasure. Now... A long list of experience, and there's many questions I could ask you today. But let's start with the basic one. Uh, where did it all start out for you? Um, well, I, I stumbled into real estate at the tender age of about 22, having done a number of things up until then. And uh, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, engaged by a, a firm in Perth called Milner and Company, now part of Knight Frank, which is a global real estate company in uh, in commercial leasing. So. Uh, I'd never really thought about real estate much until then. <laughs> My mum and dad had a house, I didn't. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it was a new day for me. And, and I just uh, you know, pretty much from the first day thought, gee, this is fantastic fun. Yeah, did went off to night school and did what I needed to do. And um, and that started a career that's uh, lasted until, un- until now and, and hopefully more years to come. Still going, isn't it? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So w- what is it like... We, we've all got a passion for real estate. Yeah. What, what is it that you, you, you can hang your hat on and say, this is what I love about it? Is it, is it you can touch it and feel it? Do you like that idea? What is it? Yeah, I'm a pretty simple soul. And I, I, I think that, you know, the thing about real estate and all its forms, it, it everything we do is, a, is attached to the ground pretty much. And it provides shelter for everything we do. Mm. Um, you know, if you stop and think, you think, gosh, I'm in an office building now. We're in a room in an office. It now has a commercial outcome. You know, people rent this space to, to to us, and we pay rent, and they get an economic return. And in the very basic form, it's shelter to everyone. And and we're blessed in this country. We've got a proper proper system of, of governance around land. We've got reasonable planning rules in most most states. Uh, I could talk for hours about mm. what needs to be done to yes. fix some of the problems, but that's another thing. So I just, it, it's, um, I, I'm probably lazy. It's a very simple thing. Mm. 
And uh, I've just been very fortunate to have uh, been able to build a career in that over the past 50-odd years. Yeah, and uh, the returns have been pretty solid. Uh, over the journey, haven't they? How, how have you witnessed that both, I suppose, in residential and commercial? Yeah, well, if we, if we just divide those into those two components, residential, uh, the very basic stuff in Australia in terms of providing shelter, but it's all, always, since World War II, it's become a commodity which is easy to trade. After bank deposits are probably the most liquid form of investment you can have. I mean, you can trade shares within with three days' notice and all those things. But for a physical asset that you can't move and um, you can break it into shares or units, if you like, the units of value, um, it, it is, uh, uh, if you put your house on the market, you'll normally get an outcome within 60 to 90 days. Uh, and that makes it pretty liquid. And what's happened with residential properties in well-located residential areas, you've had a return that's commensurate with uh, the, the risk-free rate that you get through a, a bond. Um, if you add on inflation and a, a rate of return, it normally comes up at about 8% or thereabouts. If you get 8% on investment year in, year out for a, a long, long time, it's a very satisfactory rate uh, return. Commercial, a lot of, and we're the most securitised uh, commercial market in the world. Um, so if you look at, you know, all the major buildings, office buildings, industrial buildings, shopping centres, they're generally owned by uh, either large super funds or listed entities such as the Mervacs of this world that you mentioned earlier, the Charter Halls, Dexuses and those, and that allows people to trade in and out of those uh, particular assets. So once again, that it operates a little differently to residential real estate but has a lot of similarities. It has an income stream. It... it Value goes up or down depending on circumstances. We can get into that later um, and and provides a very adequate rate of return when compared to shares in other types of uh, investments and bonds. So when, when you look at those two put together, because I get a lot of questions hit to me saying, well, which one do I go with, residential or commercial? And, and most of these are from younger people that are maybe starting out or, or just maybe want to build their portfolio. At what point do you say, yeah, I'm going to roll over to commercial now and focus on that or I'll, I'll stay with bricks and mortar um, to, to house people? Often that's a personal, a personal course that one takes and I wouldn't argue on either one of them. It mm. depends what you want to do. I think the first thing for anyone starting out, which I started and I'm sure you did, uh, when my wife and I, Kerry, got t together, you know, we went and formed a house. We bought a house. Um, I think from memory it was $31,500. <laughs> over in Perth? Over in Perth and we're paying 16.5% uh, on our mortgage, so yes. stop whinging everyone. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably we're earning about $5,000 a year. So, you know, everything's relative. Now, why would you get into commercial? I think the first and foremost, get a roof over your head, mm. pay, pay the thing down or at least have it under control in terms of mortgage. You might get another one. You might, you know, be lucky enough to have a beach house or another investment property. And some people love residential mm. and some people love commercial. And you, you, know, you, you can look at both and make reasons to own uh, either one. Mm. And often it's a personal choice. I say whatever. Uh, but, you know, real estate's been a good long-term investment alongside others. And, and I've, I've, you know, you don't get f fooled. You can lose money mm. if you're over-levered. 
And there are times when the value of houses goes down. There's times when commercial property goes down. I can take you back to 1990 to 1994, and office buildings went down 60% in value over four years. And it took them about 15 years to get back to where they were. So, you know, people say, oh, it's, it's, a one, it's always up. No, it's not. Mm. Be very aware of not overgearing yourself and, and taking excessive risk. And, that, and that's a, a good leading point. I suppose a lot of listeners at the moment may have only seen the uptimes and, and no, more, no, no retraction or major retraction as such. Obviously, on the back of COVID hitting us, there's... Property has actually gone the other way. When people thought it was going to go south, it went north. Uh, and it didn't just trickle north, it went north pretty hard. Looking back over time, do you see any cycles and, and any patterns forming over the journey? Or do you just look at real estate at one time and say, look, it's overpriced, it's got to come back at some stage? Yeah, you do. Um, and, and often that gets, uh, there's two, two things that intersect there. One is interest rates and the cost and wages. Um, do you have enough money to service your debt? When they get out of kilter, uh, then you will get a, a contraction. And the other thing that will tend to contract because it's also when markets are out of kilter is when we're in a recession. The last recession we had was in 1990 through to about 93, 94. And that's when I said commercial property came down 60%. House prices fell anything from 10 to 30% over that journey as well. So uh, those, those th- that's a, a pattern. It used to be a lot more volatile in Australia because we had shorter periods of, of inflation and deflation, interest rate movements, et cetera, et cetera. So you saw, um, you know, there was well, 1961 credit squeeze, the 1974 oil shock, the 1987 share market crash, the 1990 recession. Uh, and since then, Australia has been in a very, very lucky place. In 2008, when we had the GFC, about every major economy in the world went into recession except ours. Mm-hmm. And everybody, if you look over that very brief period, people that were caught over-levered, there were a lot of houses that transacted in, in the higher-end suburbs like Mosman, the inner, inner west, uh, the eastern suburbs of Sydney, say, and you could take any place around Australia, those places where people were over-geared and the bank simply said, we want you to square up now and they were forced to sell houses. The general market was pretty resilient. If you had to sell in that year, you might have been down 10%, but it, it bounced back pretty pretty quickly. So, the, the, so you've got to be careful. And at the moment, we've got a very strange situation where we've got interest rates that have gone from a couple of percent to 6 to 7%. So they've trebled. So people's ability to service the debt has really been hit. And we're, think, and we're scratching our heads and saying, but hang on, prices have either stayed the same or going up. Why is that? Well, there's a lack of supply. There's huge demand for properly um, located housing, be they apartments or houses in particular, and it's just there's not enough supply in the market. So that's putting the squeeze on value and that's eventually it's land value that goes up as opposed to the built form. So we talk about this supply v demand all the time and and the media talks about it and, and analysts and economists talk about it. You mentioned before about the I suppose, credit squeeze or, or, or people's inability to repay the mortgage, mm. both of those uh, almost contradict each other. Yeah. You, you've got a, an uh, undersupply and you've got a credit crunch in, in people's lives. So where does the market go from here? 
Um, that's a very good question, and <laughs> and I won't answer it. <laughs> no, I think I think from here, I'm just I've got three uh, three adult children all around the, the, their 40s, all with mortgages, two in Australia, one in Europe, and uh, they're asking the same question: Where to? Here, what do I do? They look longingly at Kerry uh, and myself, and and I uh, I, I direct Come on, Dad, them. Dad, you've got 45 years of experience. <laughs> yeah. Surely you can yeah, tell well, me the answer. They, they, I think they're looking at my bank balance, and that's not not theirs; it's mine. Uh, so. Uh, I remind them that Kerry and I sort of have been through this and, and it's about time you guys suffered a bit too. So, uh, you know, no going out on Friday nights, just pay the mortgage. The interesting thing with that is that, that people in this country will do just about anything than give up their, their mortgage. Yes. They'll go without food, they'll go without a new car, they'll go with a holiday. They will do that to pay down the mortgage. And there's a couple of reasons. If you're in the States, for instance, you can hand the keys back mm. and, and the mortgage stays with the property and you just walk away. That's what they happened. they still got that ruling? Yeah, they have, yeah. Wow. Um, so here, if you don't pay the mortgage, they take your house and then they sue you for the difference. Mm. Um, and that's because the mortgage is your mortgage, not on, on the on the property itself. So that that simple thing, but there's just pretty much ingrained and people say, oh, but people aren't going to be able to afford to buy it. Well, it was never affordable. When Kerry and I started, um, it wasn't affordable. We couldn't afford I went and borrowed money from one bank to put it into another bank because I happened to know the bank manager. We knew my dad. So he lent me $5,000, which was the deposit on the house, which we pretended we'd saved because we took it from another thing. We're 120% geared. Now, you know, we worked hard, things got, you know, and we eventually paid it down and then and then the property values went up and we're able to trade that house and get more equity into the next one and, and so life went on. And once again, it, it's not linear. It, it, you, you might be five years before the house goes up in value and it'll jump, you know, and um, we're probably going to be in one of those stage, stages kind of at the moment because that affordability issue, mm. the cost of debt, and that's not going to come down much in the next couple of years if, if um, you know, 6 to 7% interest is very cheap. Mm. We've just become lazy or we think, oh, 2%, God, you know, it's free money, but yeah. we're paying the piper now. Before we go to the break, you mentioned when you first had a, a mortgage, uh, 18% times, and, and we hear about the, the previous generations at the dinner table saying, well, you've got it easy, we're at 18% and, and doing it tough. But you also said wages were extremely low as well. How do you see the difference now? Uh, 6% on a, I don't know, 800K mortgage mm. versus five grand on an 18% yeah, yeah, yeah. mortgage? <laughs> well, it's all relevant, uh, relative, sorry. Um, you know, if, if you do the sums, you probably find the same percentage or mm. thereabouts. You know, you should be about 30% t- goes to your mortgage and 30% the living and so it goes on. So um, I always think these things, you know, it's just the value of money's depreciated over that time through through inflation and that's why we get paid what we get paid today. So it's kind of the same as what it was back then. But was the ra- the wage relative to mortgage um, a lot different? Oh, look, I, uh, John, I, I – it, it – there are um, you, you, the, the guides around that you can get. Um, it used to be, I think, three or four times mortgage, yep. wage to mortgage, and now it's it's a lot more than Six that. Six or seven, I, or something, I, I yeah. think, it's even higher. Yeah. So, but that's back in the in the day. You know, it was in the day when we first heard of credit cards. Yes, oh, it's just really dating me. Mm. We had a bank card. You know, what was that? Well, yeah. you know, it's a forerunner of visas, and, yeah. and people have different. Cash is, is 
treated differently today than what it was in my youth and certainly in my parents' youth who, apart from a war service loan, never had a credit card, never had any. All they had was a checkbook and cash yeah. in the bank. Yeah. Um, and that was the era of those people. Now we're used to credit because the world needs that. We, you know, we're a fast-moving we, we, we spend more than we've got, uh, but there's a reason for that. So what I'm hearing reading between the lines is we couldn't get our mitts on it as easily back in the day, mm. right? We had a checkbook or we had to yeah. go physically go in and get cash out mm. of the bank. You talk emotionally about people wanting to hold on to their home as mm. the last thing they'll do before eating yeah. and drinking. They've just got to tighten their reins in. Yep. Is basically your, your yeah, response yeah. to all, all of this, isn't and, it? And, 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 you know, people that arrive in Australia from overseas, immigrants that come in here, they'll pool their resources. Mm. They want to get into the housing market. Why? Because the places they've come from, they've never been able to do that. Yes. So Australia is a very, very lucky place for people to arrive mm. in and live in and we are very fortunate in this country. Yeah, good stuff. All right, after break, we're going to talk about technology, what's going forward in the in the game of real estate. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
uh, and therefore you can transact very efficiently and very effectively. Uh, Pexus system, which is the most uh, the newest digital version, means you know it's it's you don't have to be going to titles offices mm-hmm. and things like that. It's all electronic, so it speeds it up. The other thing that we have in commercial property, a lot of property is traded as as fractional ownership through unit trusts or company shares in a, in in real estate. So where a property might be $100 million means a lot of people can't afford that, obviously, but that's broken into units of $1 mm. um, and that's in listed property trusts or listed property companies, debentures, uh, mortgage funds, et cetera, and they're fractional ownership. So in this country, it's very easy to, if you've got a spare $1,000, you can actually be in the property market uh, by buying into any any number of different types of real estate. They can be office buildings, shopping centres, industrial, um, hotels, hospitals. Everything is basically unitised. So through COVID, we had this online auction system in real estate where they, they weren't physically allowed to be on site. That seems to have disappeared once we went back to the what we call the new norm. So it hasn't evolved like people think. Do you, do you think they'll – because we, we can trade – like my my uh, brother runs uh, online auctions buying agriculture like sheep and tractors and, and there's carsales.com where you can buy your car. Do we see real estate going that way or has it got a long way to go? Do people want to stand there on the dirt and, and touch it and feel it? I think both. I, I think there's a reason why you can go online and, and buy things. Um uh, particularly if it's interstate or international even. So, you know, artwork, you can do the same. Uh, you, you, you go online and bid. It might be an auction happening in another state, another country. Uh, and the same applies to a degree to real estate. I, I think the um, online auctions, uh, they do it with land sales now and that's getting uh, where people queue up uh, to bid for a new release of, yep. of land um, that's gathering momentum. It's great for the vendor, great for the purchaser. You know, you've got it. Mm. You don't have to line up the night before to wait to get inside the tent to do it, which you used to. So I think those sorts of things are happening. A, a house, which is a lot more emotional, uh, where you're planning to move into it in particular and, it's, you know, your dream home or whatever it happens to be, then uh, I think there's that nice thing of being there on site, yeah. eyeing up who else is there mm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and putting your finger in the air. There's a bit of fun about that. So I think uh, for unique places, you're more inclined to be there on, on site. Um, but a lot of places now are traded as on expressions of interest. So they, they, they inspect and they lodge a an expression of interest or price on the day. Um, we, we sold our um, home of 22 years this year and, and we did that by way of expressions of interest uh, which right. closed on a particular day and there was there was an envelope there from a particular purchaser and that was that was we, we were happy with the price and that was that was transacted. So didn't have to go to auction but they'd inspected it a few times etc. Yeah. So how do you feel about that way of transacting if you're the purchaser? Is there a lack of transparency around that where we don't know what anyone yeah. else is bidding? Yeah. Um, I think it works. I mean the, the people that bought our house, um, I, 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 dis- I discussed it with terrific people mm. and uh, discussed it with them afterwards and yeah. they were relaxed and yeah. we were happy with the price and – so it went on. Now, mm. 
There weren't a lot of buyers, but, yeah. you know, I uh, only needed one. I need one, <laughs> <don't you? laughs> Yeah, okay. So I suppose um, many young people are aspiring to get into real estate and we've spoken about, okay, we've just got to tighten the buckles and, mm. and, and reduce our spending and everything else. And they, they find it intimidating out there to, to be able to hold such a large mortgage. Like mm. I was talking to someone in Sydney last week, she's 34, she's mm. got $200,000, borrowing capacities a million dollars. Mm. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yet she can't find anything in Sydney for yeah. that in an area that we want to live in. Well, that's the trick. In the area she wants to live in yes. is, well, sorry, they're <laughs> twice that, say, yeah. um, and that's just life. And if you, you've got to... Say, well, one of two things. I either buy something somewhere else mm-hmm. um, and I either live in it or rent it out. At least I'm in there and if that goes up by 6 or 8% per annum, I've got my foot on it rather than leaving in the bank. I could uh, go into a, 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 an investment in property and, and sort of look at where that might take me. It might give me my 6 or 8%. As a rent vesting, uh, you mean? Uh, yeah. Or stay at home or? Or... I go somewhere else in the country and do that, or I simply don't buy. So, you know, you can't have everything. Yeah. You know, everyone's, well, I'll speak in the first person, you know, we didn't, we weren't in a suburb we aspired to be in in our first home. We were yes. in a nice suburb, um, but it was somewhere we, did, we didn't want to be long term, but yeah. it was a step in the along the journey. And Four years later, we're in a suburb that we aspired to be in and we're able to do that um, after four or five years. Yeah. You know. So again, you say, yeah, yeah. suck it up. Suck it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love your brashness. Um, what do you think of the, the idea of rent vesting versus buying your own home in a location where you don't want to live and living in it? Um, well, I, I think that's up to the individual. If you yep. if you can afford to rent, I mean, the trouble with rent is it's kind of dead money and it's after tax money. The beauty about a house, your own home, as opposed to an investment property, is tax-free, whereas an investment property will be deemed to be an investment property and will be taxed at the, when you tra- change that over. Mm-hmm. So you've got to think that through, that if you're not going to live there, you're going to be hit up for tax. You've got to live there for a particular period of time to satisfy the tax office that, you know, that's your principal home. Yeah. You can rent it for periods of time and I'm not an accountant so I won't, uh, I won't try and describe what that happens but you need to check that out. So once again, be careful of the tax consequences of renting out, buy, buying a house, renting it out when you don't um, own one or you're not paying one off. Even when they're – even though they're still getting – tax benefits while they own it? Um, well, are they getting tax benefits while they own it? You're getting negative gearing, you mean? Well, they're claiming the running costs, yeah, like yeah, the interest. Yeah, you can do that, but you've also got to pay tax at the back end on any yes. capital gains. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to weigh all that up mm-hmm. and, and it will suit some people, won't suit others. Yeah, sure. Okay. As a successful business owner over the journey, uh, in in multiple different businesses, not mm. just started a business and ran it for thirty mm. years and and then retired. I suppose two parts to this. The first part is, what sort of advice would you give uh, or um, or tips to be able to, uh, I suppose, help any budding entrepreneurs or business owners, mm. regardless of the field or the industry. Just mm. what what are the key concepts that have made you successful? Uh, determination. <laughs> I yep. think. Uh, grit and determination. I, I, I think, you, you know, you've got to believe in what you're doing. You've got to get up early and go to bed late. 
um, and you work your butt off. Um, and you, you've got to check that every once in a while, make sure that there's a reason still to do that. Uh-huh. Some, some people get into businesses where there's no future. If you find yourself in that, get out of it, cut your losses and move on. But let's just say you're passionate about something, you believe in it, you think it's got a reason for being, and then you just work bloody hard to get there. You know, you need a good team around. Well, in my case, I always needed a good team around me because I'm lazy. Um, but <laughs> well, that contradicts, though, <laughs> the determination and the laziness. Well, yeah, but I can't, you can't do everything. So yeah. you've got your skill set and you need to get the people that have the other skills that marry up with your yes. skills to make it happen. And I've been very lucky over my journey to have worked with, uh, you know, Terrific people along the along the journey. It's been fun, and and if you you hand picked them along the way, yeah. and if you hand picked them before you've gone in and bought that business, or you've built it up and well, said, I've right, built it up. I need I've you. Just about every business I've done, I've started from scratch. Mm. Uh, I've got two. I'm incubating three. Actually, I'm incubating now. Uh, so I've got you know three teams of people out there that are doing that, that work in those particular businesses. They're all property related businesses, and uh, and then. As they grow, you get another person joins, etc. And I'm a great believer in teams. Mm. Uh, that's probably why I like the swans. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's a team thing. And yeah. some people are different. Some people are very autocratic, and they just you know that's all about them. I I just think differently. I love the idea of teams. I think teams can achieve far more than than an individual. And you get some time off as well. You know, because someone else will fill in for you. Take while, the load. Yeah, t- take the load off. Mm which um, I suppose in my case you wouldn't want to talk to my wife about that because she would suggest that I haven't done that too often. But yeah. but you can actually uh, get to a point where, you, you know, you can spread the load a little bit and I do that reasonably just, successfully. Just on your wife and, and mm. family, people's consideration of balance, right? Now, I don't want to call it work-life mm. because it's, no, it's, it's not nonsense. that. Yeah. It's, it's lifestyle and yeah. and what you want. What's the, the keys to making sure you've you've got that balance? I, I don't, you know, I, there's lots of books written about this stuff and I've not read one of them. And I just, um, and everyone's different. I, I think I look at my kids now and I think, gee, they're, they're, and Kerry comments on about it, I don't seem to work as hard as you did. And uh, <laughs> maybe it's, um, and it, you know, we don't overindulge them. So it's up to them as to what they do, but it's a different style and, and people, have a lot more respect for, for balance now. But I was lucky enough after my first uh, business, which I started when I was about 30, and when I sold out of that and I was early 40s, I, um, I, I, I took 18 months off. Mm. Um, now, I'd worked pretty much seven days a week. Right. Yeah, we'd had three kids come into the world. I was there, particularly on weekends, it was kind of their time, but even then there was times when I had to be away and overseas and mm. all sorts of stuff. So there wasn't much of a balance in that. It was work and then occasionally I've got a week, let's take a holiday and everyone, there was a fair bit of stress going on at that time. At that time I thought, right, I want to start another business and I thought about it took a bit of over, yeah, it was up to 18 months before I started my next one, thought about it and and, and got going. And um, I wasn't actually all idle at that time. I had a couple of other things going. But... What I decided at that time was, okay, I'm starting a new business and I made a pact with myself. I didn't tell my family straight away, certainly not my wife, but I decided I'd take six to eight weeks off a year. And from that time I did. And and I, I would work that around school holidays and when the kids moved, moved past that, I would still I still take, you know, 
uh, probably eight to ten weeks off a year comfortably. Mm-hmm. Now it's fantastic because you've got your whole office on a phone that you know is in your pocket. You can find out what's going on. You're yes. not you're not isolated. Whereas in the old days, you'd be looking for a phone box and on a on an island somewhere, and there'd be one box, and you'd be worried about what was happening back at the factory, so to speak. And now it's with you, so it doesn't matter where you go in the world. You know, you can keep an eye on things, and a person that's like me needs that because yeah. that's the adrenaline that keeps Control. me going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, we're getting towards the end. Um, can you share any memorable stories or experiences from your career? And, and and I'm sure we could do three or four different episodes on on your experiences, but I suppose ones that have stood out to you and, and you often refer back to or that may have shaped your businesses or, or some way, shape or form? Um, well, when I moved from um, working for other people and starting my own, my own business with partners, uh, I got into the funds management area back in um, 1981. And uh, the one thing that uh, I think has stuck with me, thank goodness, is something my, my chairman of the first company said on the first meeting is he said, gentlemen, and they were all, all just men around the board in those days, yeah. four of us, I think we should always remember it's grandma's money. And that stayed with me forever. And I, and I impart that to other people. When you're looking after people's money or after looking after anything you're doing with other people, remember whose it is, mm. respect it. I think that's the the best thing that's stood by me the whole time. Mm. Put your investors first and that you, you expand that in to put your family first or however you want to uh, handle that. But puts the other people first and if you've got them first, good things will happen. Mm. If you put yourself in front, it's all about me, then oh, I think it's just the wrong thing. So that's stuck with me. No, I like and that. I've been blessed with uh, – People that I've done business with that have been, you know, I did a billion-dollar transaction once over the phone. We shook hands on it. The guy sent me a check for $600 million as his share Uh, and uh, and that was done because we'd done commerce together. He trusted me and that's the best gift a person could ever have is that that trust that someone has in you and I – Fortunately, everything worked really well, but by hell you worry about it because, mm, because of that yeah, trust. Yeah. Pressure on you, yeah. yeah. So trust, generosity and team is what I'm hearing yeah, out of this. Uh, pretty much. Which is not, not rocket science. No, it's not rocket science. No. Uh, finally, tell me about Backtrack and and the um, I suppose you're chairing Backtrack as an organisation to help young people. Tell me yeah, about that. Yeah, Backtrack's based in Armidale. Uh, it's run by a gentleman called Bernie Shakeshaft and I, I've been involved with Bernie now for eight or nine years and uh, he's set that up about 17 years ago. And he is like a, a kid whisperer and, you know, he's, he, he, there's lots of things written about Bernie so you can look it up. Um, and anyway, at the time, uh, they were looking to grow the business. It had a revenue of about a million dollars a year, uh, mainly from people that liked what he was doing and then gave him a, a check to keep going. Mm-hmm. And we look after vulnerable young people from the age of about 11 uh, through until whenever they don't want to be with us. Uh, we don't have a cutoff point. Um, we now have, we call it sort of primary, secondary and tertiary. Uh, these kids come, they have normally grade one reading and writing, arithmetic, normally can add up because <laughs> they, they, they learn about that early on for other things they're doing. 
most of them have fallen between the cracks. They've been kicked out of school. They have often come from very damaged homes and home lives. Uh, and we have a campus in Armadale. Uh, we have a, a, a property just outside Armadale called Warra, where we house uh, six young people each each night where we care for them, have home parents. We have uh, small homes that we've actually put 25 acres there around it where we're transisting, you know, 16, 17-year-olds into being able to look after themselves and make their way in the world. And we also have a works program uh, where up to 35, 40 young people are learning uh, a trade. Mm. Um, We have uh, welding on site. We have carpentry. We have art. uh, We we teach them fencing because these kids are outdoorsy, particularly the boys. And uh, during the during the fires, there was a lot of damage to um, to, to to fencing. And I think last count, we've done about two hundred and fifty kilometres of fencing. Wow. Uh, and getting full, and these kids are getting fully paid adult, you know, proper wages. They're learning how to participate in the workforce, that's getting right. driver's license, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's got a budget now of about eight and a half million dollars. Uh, largely, we we don't get much government funding at all, mm. be nice, but it always comes with so many conditions to say, you know what, we'll just yeah, do it ourselves. Do it yeah, and, and that's just in Armidale, right? Well, it's got outreach programs. Uh, uh, we've normally got the word track in it, down the track, back. Uh, what, what's, we've got about half a dozen of them. I just can't think yeah, of the top of my head. track. That'll do. <laughs> um, but we're out as far as Broken Hill, um, Maxville, Dubbo, we're uh, on the Hawkesbury um, and, and various other places yes, and right. those and we're sort of uh, – we're using our – they come to us and we help them set themselves up. Every town, every community is a little different so we don't want to try and McDonaldize it and say this is what you must do. Yeah. But we have a, a collaborative arrangement with these people and we help them with their governance. I mean, one of the reasons I got involved is we need to have proper governance. We're a, a statutory group. We, we have a DG status. That means we can collect money from the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a charity. I have a board of um, – we've just expanded it by two. So I've got um, six directors from various different walks of life fantastic board and uh, we help Bernie by having all that governance so the people giving us money and some people give us a lot of money mm. each we raise eight million dollars a year and they want to know that the governance is good yeah and that's my job keep that rolling on with my with support of my board yeah what a great cause yeah well done and, and finally you're a board member of the, the Sydney Swans this is one of your passions what's, yep. what's the outlook for 2024 oh Grand final, without Grand final. doubt. There we go. We've heard it first. <laughs> Greg Paramore, been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, John. Everyone else out there, hopefully you've enjoyed that. Thanks for allowing us into your ears. And until next time, take care. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 